Thank you, Nathan. Thank you, Julie. Chad, Eddie. Uh, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to uh, the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 4. Uh, if you remember, about two months ago, we ended up in chapter 4, uh, verse 5. And so uh, here we'll begin in chapter 4, verse 6. Uh, so, First Timothy chapter four. Uh, we're gonna actually. I'm gonna read for us verse one through ten, um, and uh, but we'll cover verse six is verse six through ten together. So, First Timothy chapter four, uh, verse one. Now the Spirit expressly says. We talked about the Spirit this morning in Christian Growth Group, right? This is the Holy Spirit. He expressly says. That in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. So this was we covered this last time. There is from Paul a uh, uh, saying: the Spirit has already said that in the latter times there's going to come teaching, and that teaching is false. And not only is that false, but it is coming from demons. Okay. Then you can describe it. Three, or two, first, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. These are liars. Who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. So he's saying this teaching, this false teaching, this dangerous teaching is going to be this. That you, the people of God, must uh, abstain from marriage and really what they're after their sex. And you must abstain from uh, certain foods and certain drinks. And that that will earn you merit and favor before God. And Paul says, dead wrong. Verse 4, he gives a reason for dead wrong. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving for it is made holy by the Word of God in prayer. Then verse 6, if you put these things, he's talking to Timothy here, before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed, having nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and we strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially to those who believe. Let's pray. Lord God, it is good to be in Your house with Your people. It is good to be part of the kingdom of God. And we believe that when Christ came, so with Him came the kingdom of God. And Lord, we have spent weeks looking at the fact that one day the very kingdom that came with the King Christ will come in its fullness when He comes again. And so, Lord, 
We look forward to that. But Lord, we also thank You that Your Word is clear that Your Kingdom is now coming. And as we come, as a gathering of those who call upon the name of Christ, we come representing Your Kingdom. And so, Father, I thank You with deep gratitude that You haven't left us alone, but You have given us a helper in the Spirit. And Lord, You have gone far beyond that. You have given us a revealed Word in the Scriptures. And so we gather around. We gather around as Your people this morning, around the Word of God, trusting that Your Spirit will move And Lord, in our midst, the kingdom will be brought forth more fully in our hearts. We ask that of You, God. We're banking on You. And so, Father, we trust You with that. We trust that You can pull this off. We thank You that everything we have is given to us through Jesus Christ, Your Son. And so now we trust Your Spirit to move in our midst. In Your name we pray. Amen. So, 1 Timothy chapter 4, we just looked at verses 1 through 5, and we just said that they are a strong argument that the Christian life is more than avoiding certain foods, drink, and sex. Moreover, we saw that boiling the Christian life down to that is not just not exactly right, But far from it, it is, according to Paul, demonically dangerous. Or another way to put it, it is, his own words, a lie from hell. So Paul moves on to instruct Timothy, not that, son. Now let me give you instruction towards what? And that's what we're going to get here in verse 6. So in verse 6 he says, If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. So if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant for Christ Jesus. So this passage serves as Paul's aim to explain to his student, mentee Timothy, what it is to be successful in ministry. Paul tells Timothy, if you ever want to know if you're doing a good job, here's how you can know. So this passage is especially for those who, like Timothy, hold the office of pastor or ever want to, have a desire to. How do you know you're doing a good job? It's a way that we can judge if we're doing well or not. It's a great gift, I think, to pastors. Because if, if it weren't for this, it is real easy for us to take other measures uh, that, that we can make up, create, or steal from the world and be tempted to judge our performance on that. But God has given us right here in His Word a clear measure as to know what type of job we're doing. And so, this is a passage for pastors. But it is also, just so you don't check out, It is also a passage for all believers. And let me give you quick two reasons why. It's not just a passage for pastors. Reason number one is because all believers are called unto ministry. Let me say that again. Every believer is called in to ministry. In Luke 9, Jesus describes salvation in terms of following Him. 
It was an active follower that he talked about. In fact, he goes on so much so to describe uh, not following him as not knowing him. He actually uses this language, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. So notice that he doesn't just say no pastor who puts his hand to the plow and looks back isn't fit to be a pastor. He says nobody who who puts his hand. No one. And so it's an argument that every single person is called into following Christ and every single person is called into ministry. I can remember sitting on an ordination council, this was years ago, and the question came, can you tell us about your call into ministry? And I can remember looking back and saying, well, that happened when I was about uh, seven years old. And they said, wow, that was an early call. I said, well, that's when I accepted Christ Jesus as my Savior. I didn't know it then and I didn't fully understand it, but I was being called into full-time ministry. And I went on to explain, uh, by this time, my dad was on the council, I'll never forget it, he's ducking at that point, going, this is going to be a real long session. Um, and I'm thinking, uh, as I explained to the guy, I, I, don't think there, I don't think I'm any more called to the ministry than anybody else who calls himself a follower of Christ. Every follower of Christ is called day in and day out to proclaim the name of Jesus. So we have different gifts but not one of us is called any less into following Christ. Not one of us. So that's one reason. The other reason is because inasmuch as you are called into following Christ, you're called to be a member of a church. Some believe that. Every believer is called into being a member at a church. And every church had better, according to the New Testament, have some pastors. So that means if you're a believer... You're at a church, and that church has pastors. Well, then you better have a way of judging those pastors. And here, the New Testament gives us a way to do that. So I think this is something good for pastors, but it is also good for all believers. So it says there, um, as he continues, being trained, he's talking to Timothy, being trained in the words of faith and of good doctrine that you have followed. Being trained in the words of faith. Now, the ESV is odd here, to be quite honest with you. Um, the, it's the only translation uh, outside also the NIV that doesn't use something like nourish. All the rest of the translations here say something like being nourished in the words of faith and of good doctrine, of good instruction. Uh, Paul is telling Timothy to be nourished, to be trained uh, in this. And I really like how the, NA, uh, the New American Standard here says constantly nourished. You'll be constantly nourished. And the ESV tries to pick this up by saying being trained. In other words, this isn't a one-time thing. Paul is telling Timothy that you are to feed on the Word of God and on Scripture on an ongoing basis. That's why I think nourish is so helpful there. The idea of nourishment is not a one-time event in anyone's life who understands nourishment well. Right? It's an ongoing thing. I was nourished yesterday. I've been nourished today. And because there's more waking hours in the day, I look forward to being nourished more. Right? It's an ongoing process. And so Paul tells Timothy... You need to be nourished, constantly being nourished 
in feeding upon Christ. There is a lifetime process for a believer, especially the pastor, of regularly going to the trough of Scripture and being nourished. Would you pray for your pastors that there would be within us a hunger for the Word of God? If you haven't thought to pray for us that way, pray for us that way. It's an incredible way to lift us up. Ask God, give them a hunger for the Word of God that they would find it and consistently find it as a life-giving source of energy, of hope and faith and love. And let me also suggest that one of the ways you can encourage us in this the most as a congregation is having a deep desire for the Word of God yourself. I am encouraged to teach and preach and know the Word of God because the Scriptures tell me to do so and God expects that of me. But I also have to tell you, it is helpful when there are a group of people around me who also desire it and want to know it themselves. And so it is helpful if there's a congregation wanting to dive into the Scriptures. Pause for a second and ask this question that I am praying and I have been praying this question does not come across as burdensome. I don't want it to be. I don't want you to answer this out loud. I don't even want you to answer this by nodding your head to indicate in any way. Do you have a practice of daily reading the Scriptures? Don't answer that out loud. Don't nod your head. If you don't, This is not the moment for me to burden you into that. It's not it. I want to help you do that. If you do not have that process in your life, we just saw from the Word of God that Paul is saying you have got to be constantly fed. And so let me give you a very tangible way you can do this. If you will go on a regular basis, daily basis, as long as it's after 5.30 a.m. every day, if you go to our church website, you're going to see a little thing in the bottom corner that says Twitter feed, and you can click on a link, and within seconds, you will see four passages of Scripture ready for you that day. And you say, I don't have an internet connection. You let me know, we'll get you a paper schedule ready to go. It takes you 15 minutes a day, And listen, you can get through the entire Bible in a year if you'll just do that every day. And then pray through that. And if you say, Tim, I don't know where to begin. Begin by going. And if you get behind, don't get discouraged. Go back. Pick up the next day. If you read stuff that you say, I have no idea what it's talking about, keep going. Listen, if you have questions, please, there, I'll be glad to help you. Any of the other pastors will be glad to help you. There are other members that will be glad to help you. I want our congregation to be a place where any honest question about anything of the faith is welcome. And I promise you, we'll have no tolerance for anyone ever looking down on somebody else for not knowing something about the faith. I know a little bit about the Scriptures and there's a whole lot I do not know. But I'm going to tell you this, I didn't come to get answers about the Scripture by sitting at my desk by myself only. 
My process is a thousand questions asked over and over to older saints who patiently dealt with me on a consistent basis. And I want you to find an older saint in the congregation to help you deal with it. And I want you to know the Scriptures. And so I beg you, if I can do anything to help you, what I do not want is you walking out feeling burdened today. I don't want that. I want you to walk out with the opportunity to have a plan, have a place to get your questions answered in a way that today you can begin saying, I will now constantly be nourished by the Word. Alright, moving on. Verse 7, Have nothing to do with irreverent, Silly myths. And here again, the translations are going to they're gonna vary quite wildly. Paul uses a couple words here that aren't used in the New Testament in this passage in, anywhere else. And so it's tough for translators to deal with. Some of yours are going to say things like uh, ESV, they're silly myths. Others are going to say old wives' tales. Um, and like I said, they're, they're going to vary. Paul is telling Timothy, avoid those things that do not flow out of good words of doctrine, that do not flow from the Bible, do not flow from the Scriptures. A couple of things here. First, we should not give this a quick, hasty glance. It's real easy for us to read this and read it on the lines of, well, of course, we don't believe heresy. Now let's move on. What do you really want us to hear? Give Paul and give Timothy a lot more credit. We know enough about Timothy's character to know that Paul wouldn't have to waste his time with something that could, with saying something that could go unsaid. Paul is warning Timothy not about crazy, crazy ideas that would be so wild that he would never give any thought to him. He's warning him about those myths that are close enough to truth that they are dangerous. Not every myth comes dressed with a myth cape. <laughs> so as you know, there's a myth. No, they'll be disguised as truth and myths are only dangerous when they rent space near truth. If you have fertile soil and you have sunlight and you have nourishment, you can grow some really nice flowers. So I've learned. You can also grow some really nasty weeds. So I've learned. And sometimes those weeds look like flowers. I look at them and go, did I plant that? Uh, that looks good, right? Um, I know enough about weeds to pull them. Sometimes the same soil grows both flower and grows weeds. And so the second point, O oh church, listen, know our context. What is our context? We live in the Bible belt of the South. This is some fertile ground for growing solid biblical doctrine and God has used it to, blow, to grow some beautiful flowers, trees, and plants for His kingdom. But it is just as fertile ground for growing some nasty, fat, ugly, unbiblical weeds of myths. And a brief look at the history of evangelical churches, especially in the last 
50-75 years will tell you that they have been plagued with silly mist weeds disguised as flowers. And if we do not grow a stomach as a people of God for calling a weed a weed, then to keep the analogy going here, sooner or later we're going to be in the weeds. So let's declare some things. Let's just say some things out in the open together. Just because something is positive and encouraging doesn't mean that it is Christian. And just because something is family-friendly doesn't mean that it's Christian. Just because it exalts hope and love and peace and joy does not mean it's Christian. Just because it commends God and country does not mean it's Christian. Just because it's sold in a Christian bookstore, hear me, does not mean it's Christian. Just because it mentions or encourages prayer, listen, that does not necessarily mean it's Christian. Just because it uses Scripture doesn't mean it's Christian. There has never been a heresy that lasted more than two days that didn't use the Scriptures of God. And just because it's said from a pulpit does not mean that it's Christian. Just because a Baptist church has always done it that way does not mean that it's Christian. Just because it demeans the work of Satan doesn't mean that it's Christian. Just because it is from a Republican or from a Democrat doesn't mean that it is Christian. Just because it mentions Jesus in a positive light doesn't mean that it's Christian. And just because it rhymes well in a song doesn't mean that it's Christian. Every one of those are some way connected to silly myths that are plaguing our churches. Paul warns Timothy to be nourished upon solid doctrine so that you can avoid silly myths. This is why we must be people in the Scriptures. Otherwise, you think a, a weed is a flower. And instead, it's a weed. And not only is the problem that it's not a flower, but it's taking the nourishment away from true biblical doctrine. When I think of old wives' tales, I think of things that mothers and grandmothers tell their children and grandchildren that aren't true, but just, just help them out a little bit. You know some of these. If you make that face, it's going to stay that way. Right? Yeah, that's not true. Um, you don't have to go to uh, uh, school as a dermatologist to figure out that's not true. If you cross your eyes, they're going to stay that way. That's not true. I, I made sure with Heather that wasn't. It seemed like it might be. She said, no, that's not going to do it. I said, okay. Um, it, coffee stunts your growth. Now, my dad drank a lot of coffee. And, well, anyway, I, um, anyway. Um, it, just to say, that one worked well until I got to college. I just needed to stay up and I said, it's going to have to be what it's going to be. In all these cases, believing these things will lead to good behavior. But hear me, they're not true. I'm afraid that that's often the source of silly myths. We think it's going to lead to good behavior and therefore we buy it. Yet I'm telling you, if it's not from the Word of God, it cannot be trusted. It will not last us long. It will only cause us disrepair in the long run. 
So stay away from silliness. I like this about Paul. Oftentimes he tells you a negative and then he just moves right to the positive. And I appreciate that. Verse 7. Rather, instead of all that, train yourself for godliness. Train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way. As it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That's Paul saying this is, this is something we've got to hold on to, church. Paul goes on and he tells Timothy here, train, train yourself for godliness. Now this is a different word for train than is used up in verse 6. This is actually the word that we've derived our English word for gymnasium. It's that word. It's an active engagement, a, a, dis, a disciplined engagement to actively involve yourself for something. He's saying do that for the sake of godliness. And to make this point, Paul points to an analogy of physical training. He says that physical training is of some value as it helps you in the present life, but spiritual training is more valuable because it helps you for eternity. Now, this very apt analogy is very helpful. It's one that as a preacher you read it and go, thanks Paul, that will preach. First, a couple things. First, this is not saying that physical training is of no value. So all of us who are ready to swear off exercise forever out of biblical conviction, we're out of luck. And i got to tell you, don't get me wrong, if there is a biblical conviction that I would, would, if I could, ever be happy to defend, it would be that one. Right? But that's not what Paul is saying. Secondly, he is telling us that we should be far more concerned about spiritual training than about physical training. i got to tell you, one of the things I really appreciate about the younger generation, uh, and I mean here those who uh, under 30, they, uh, more than probably any generation in the history of mankind, are the most health-conscious generation there's ever been. Uh, and uh, as a result, both guys and gals spend an enormous amount of time in the gym, running, eating like rabbits, um, and doing ridiculously complex exercises. Um, and uh, I, I honestly think that is a great thing. There is a, it's a much needed thing. So I also think there's never been a generation that this analogy is going to better play with than this generation. So young person or old person, think of all the time and energy exerted in training your physical body and now consider the time and energy you spend training your soul. Just think about it. Paul is so right. You know, you can work like mad to get yourself down to 5% body fat and then you can walk out and get hit by a bus. And how much was it worth? Not much. I mean, the pallbearers at your funeral might appreciate it a little bit, um, but uh, it's really not going to do hardly anybody else much value, right? But what about the spiritual training? Paul says... It is forever valuable. Think about this. You will never expend one wasted second in spiritual training. Not one. I appreciate the value of physical health. 
But let us remember the Scriptures clearly indicate that the comparison in value of physical health and training versus spiritual training is as close as the value between the length of the average human life, which which James says is like a what? A vapor. Right? That much. Versus the length of eternity. That's the difference in comparison how valuable physical training is versus spiritual training. That's helpful. Now let's press it a little further. Analogy Paul gives to tell us that like physical training is hard work, so also spiritual training is hard work. We have to be people who desire godliness far more than we desire... Or, uh, we must desire godliness and detest ungodliness or far more than we desire ungodly thoughts. You know, I spent about three hours this week on a treadmill um, running. And, and you may say, wow, Tim, you must enjoy running. Oh gosh, no. Um, I just really, really don't like obesity. Um, I, if I had an option... Let me tell you, if there was a study that came out that said you can spend the same amount of time sitting and reading as you can on a treadmill and you'll burn the same amount of calories, I would be the first person to sign up. I would be as happy as it gets. But instead, I'd go run. Why? Not because I love running, but because I don't. I like uh, the results that it brings. Or better way to put it, I don't like what would happen if I didn't. But you know, it's interesting. You hear the way we talk about spiritual disciplines. It's a very different way of talking. We actually usually judge those in terms of how much we enjoy them. Let me give you some examples. Someone asked, how was church today? I venture to guess one of the most common responses is something on the lines of, yeah, it was good, I really enjoyed it. Or, I hear your church changed a new curriculum for discipleship. How is that? Well, I don't really like it. You know, oftentimes, honest to goodness, we, we think those responses are appropriate responses for spiritual discipline. <laughs> how far would that get you with physical discipline? I mean, how does that work out? You know, I really didn't enjoy it that much. Okay. <laughs> of course you didn't. You're working out. I, I'm going to tell you, if I use that criteria in running, I would get about 300 yards, maybe. I can imagine a person at a membership at a gym going to the gym owner and saying, look, i got to tell you, I, I, I want my money back, not because you don't have machines that give me a solid workout, not because they're not challenging, not because you're not open enough hours, but because I'm just not enjoying these workouts as much as I hope. If I was the owner of that gym, I would tell you, well, go buy yourself a movie ticket and a bucket of popcorn and you'll find yourself something you enjoy. This is called a gymnasium. We do this out of discipline. Now, I don't want to push this too much. That, it breaks down just like physical and spiritual. There are some physical disciplines we enjoy. And there are times that you will really, really enjoy spiritual disciplines. In fact, as God works in our hearts more, we enjoy them more. But let me press you 
that just because you don't enjoy it doesn't mean it's not good for you. I am a little nervous, though, about communicating something um, that I do not want to communicate. I don't want us leaving here thinking that spiritual disciplines with some regularity, like the same regularity we have for physical exercise, will guarantee godliness. That's just not how it works. In terms of a cause and effect relationship, it's probably much better to think of spiritual disciplines like tuning an instrument. So, for example, uh, if, if a finely tuned instrument does not guarantee that you're going to get good music, I could prove that real easy by handing me a finely tuned guitar, <laughs> and I guarantee you, you're not going to get good music if I'm playing it, right? So just because it's finely tuned doesn't mean that you get good music. On the other hand, a poorly tuned instrument does guarantee you bad music. You take a guitar that's very poorly tuned, you give it to Nathan or you give it to Chad or to any guitar player, I don't care how good of a guitar player they are, it's not going to sound good. And I think this is very helpful when thinking of spiritual disciplines. You can have a well-disciplined life spiritually and be light years from godliness. Let me say that one more time. You can have a well-disciplined life spiritually and be light years from godliness. A godly heart is found at the intersection of a well-disciplined heart and a heart that's producing spiritual fruit. So when you start looking and seeing love and patience and kindness and gentleness and peace and and self-control, then you're starting to see the instruments of a beautiful heart playing beautiful music unto God. And this is where there is a reliance upon the Spirit. Yes, we work hard and we train hard, but we rely upon God to bring about spiritual fruit. That takes us right into verse 10. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hopes set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. So Paul now grounds the purpose for which Timothy should pursue right doctrine. The reason why he should avoid miss and train hard for godliness. He says, for to this end... We toil and strive, meaning for godliness we toil and strive. Why? Because we have our hope set on the living God. Now this is helpful. Don't pursue godliness. Don't even pursue spiritual disciplines as if it depends on you. No. Pursue godliness with your hope set on the living God and trusting Him who is actively pursuing you. Paul goes on to describe God is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. Now some people think that this verse implies that all people, regardless of their belief, are going to be saved. Aside from not making good sense of this verse whatsoever, it 
fails to make sense of what Paul says just two chapters before where he says, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, that is Christ Jesus, he says in 1 Timothy 2.5. We know that's not what this verse means. So what does it mean? I think by saying the Savior of all people, Paul means at least three things. Love this. First, he affirms that for all of humanity, it is God who is their Savior. That is, there are not multiple Saviors, but one Savior for all humanity. That's an amazing statement. Second, he's claiming that the God who is the Savior of the Jewish people is also the God who is the Savior of the non-Jewish people. And you've got to imagine, for Paul, who spent most of his life believing the very opposite of that, who is the Jew of Jews, that he never tires from making that point. This Jesus, He is the Savior for both Jews and non-Jews, and He is Yahweh. And lastly, he's making a point about the worldwide global scope of salvation. Timothy, seek godliness because God is saving a people from every tribe and every tongue. And He is going to push this gospel across the entire world. And Paul goes on the last part of the verse to explain who it is among these people groups, among those non-Jewish peoples who will be saved. Namely, or especially, it is those who believe, those who set their hope on the living God. So hear this. There is one true, living, holy God. There are many gods in the sense of those that are worshipped, but they are all dead. There is only one living God. There are many myths about Him, but this book consistently and plainly teaches us about Him and it says that He is holy and we are not. And it makes the bold claim that every single person born under Adam is a sinner. And that there is a punishment for that in a place called hell. But it also makes the audacious claim that this very same God has secured a way to save us from the punishment of our sins. Namely, He sent His Son into human flesh where He died on a cross. He paid the penalty for our sins. And if we believe in Him, then we will be among those saved. Let's not miss the forest for the trees. What's the main thrust of what Paul is saying? Believe it or not, it's really not a major statement on salvation, though certainly it is a statement on salvation. But the major purpose for what Paul is after is for giving us the purpose and motive for Christian ministry. Remember what Paul begins verse 10 with. He begins with, To this end we what? We toil and we strive. We labor and we work hard. So he tells us that the Christian minister works 
hard, very hard in his involvement in God's saving work. The Christian minister who is faithful will work very, very hard. Something I deeply appreciate about my father. He's a man who believes in hard work. Growing up in my household, there was little time for rest and relaxation. And if you're doing such, you act like you're not because you won't be doing such long. To be honest, I thought all pastors worked that hard. And then I realized some do, but not all. But Paul is saying that hard work is not the exception. It's got to be the norm for the Christian minister. There is no room for laziness in a life of a faithful minister. He will work tirelessly for the sake of the kingdom. Let me add something that I didn't appreciate much until now, and that is that the wife of a faithful minister must work very, very hard as well. Very few people appreciate the amazing sacrifices of a minister's wife. Yet as you read the profound pastors across the ages, I'm telling you, one after another, what you will find is behind them, oftentimes behind the scenes, is a godly, humble, profoundly mature believer who is working her tail off for the kingdom of God. And so they work together as a team. And they labor together with great toil and great striving because the ministry is hard work. And I'm so thankful to Paul that it's right in the pages of Scripture. I'm not going to lie. I sleep real well on Sunday nights. I sleep real well on Sunday nights. And now I've got right here in the page of Scripture why. Because you better. You better work hard. You better label and you better toil and strive. But I'm so glad there's a second part of this. The second part is that my labor and no pastor's labor, no minister's labor and your labor will never be in vain. No. Inasmuch as we serve the kingdom of God, then there will be triumph. Why? Because this God is about saving people from every tribe and tongue. And He's going to do it. He's going to do it because of their belief. That's what Paul says. Work hard at all this. So Paul instructs Timothy in four things. One, nurture yourself on the Word. Two, avoid unbiblical Miss. Three, train for godliness. Four, work hard knowing God is using it all to bring salvation on a cosmic level. And as we close, there's one last thing I've got to tidy up. And it's hit me as I was finishing up writing the message. I realized I began this message by talking about verses 1 through 5 and the demonically dangerous idea that there were certain things that if you don't do, then you will be saved. And I realized that somebody could leave here and actually be hearing me to say the very exact same thing as verses 1 through 5. That is, it might feel to you like I've just given you, or the text has just given us, 
four things. Just go do these or don't do these and you're going to be okay. But I don't want you to hear that. I don't want you to hear that because legalism isn't just not exactly right. Legalism, according to Paul here, is demonically dangerous and misses Christianity altogether. So what gives? I think the physical training analogy might be helpful here. Um, as a dietitian, my wife, Heather, uh, gets all, uh, asked often about various diets. Uh, you know as well as I do that every year there's a new diet, a new method, a new plan to quickly lose some weight. And, uh, you know, I've heard Heather help people um, uh, throughout the years and I've never ever heard her give or recommend any one of those diets. Um, and so I asked her, we're on a walk yesterday, I said, why don't you ever recommend any of those? And she said, because they don't work. Um, well, they must do something. They show those pictures. Um, and she was kind enough not to mention to me Photoshop and all those things. She said, Tim, they bring about short-term solutions. That's the problem. A person will lose weight with those and they'll lose it quick, but they're going to get it right back because it's not long-term sustainable. said, instead, what we like to do is we like to help somebody figure out a lifestyle they can live with, that they actually can live with, and that will bring about health long-term, even if it's not some shocking quick weight gain that they can live with. And I said, thank you, honey. That will preach. I'm sure she's like, how? Well, listen... Paul, very similar. Legalism is like a quick diet. It'll bring quick results. You'll shape up your behavior real quick. There you go. Try it on your kids. It'll work pretty quick. You can change some behavior. But Paul isn't talking about that. Paul is talking about a lifestyle change that comes about in the change of a heart. And He's given us these things that only make sense if your entire life is devoted to it. Nurturing, nurturing yourself on, on the Word, avoiding unbiblical mistraining for godliness, working hard under the kingdom. That doesn't sound good for a short-term solution. It's a long-term way of life. One of the fun things about having a uh, uh, a little one is you get to rediscover all of things that you thought you knew. And Asher, being the, the time of the year it is, is seeing a lot of butterflies and he thinks they're so cool. And as I was showing him the butterflies the other day, I thought, this is the perfect analogy. That's what it is. The difference between a Christian following Christ closely is not the difference between a behavior that is perfect versus non-perfect. Nah. It's the amazing difference between what an ugly caterpillar looks like and a butterfly. They're drastically different. They're differently, they have different ways of life. That's what Paul's talking about. He's talking about a life that is radically changed by the truth of the gospel of Christ and therefore goes on living very, very differently. The difference between a caterpillar and 
a butterfly is the difference between a non-transformed and a transformed life. And that's what Christianity is all about. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for your word. You know better than I do the inadequacies of, of me as a servant of your word. And so, Father, if there's anything in what's taught that is myth, then Lord, I pray that you would allow it to fall on deaf ears today. But Lord, inasmuch as what is taught accords with the Scriptures and with truth, I pray, O oh God, that you would use it to transform hearts and lives. We trust that you and you alone can do that because you are the one true living God. We ask these things to you, Father. We thank you for the saving work of Jesus Christ. Would you now work by your Spirit? Amen.